Good morning. How y'all doing? Good? You guys sleep a little bit? A little bit? <laughs> Not really. Who got, uh, who got at least six hours of sleep? Anyone? Who got less than five? Who got less than four? Who got less than three? Who got less than two? All right. Well, three. Good. All right. Good work. Guys, we're in, a, we're in Philippians 2, so open your Bible and turn there. Um, and I don't know, when you guys are thinking about following Jesus, right, one of the things we're doing when we're, we're trying to be disciples of Jesus, we're trying to follow him, is we're basically trying to, you know, like we're coming to Jesus with stuff in our lives that's broken, that's messed up, right, flaws, failures, and kind of we talked at the beginning, right, it's like even the things, like Thursday night, the things that are in us, like this, the sin, the failure, even like is, is a as dark of a picture as you could paint of it, right? This adultery, this like consistent unfaithfulness, right? We, the gospel actually says that even those things in us, they don't actually repel God from us, but actually the very things that draw his heart and love towards us, right? So we actually can come near to God even when we feel so completely broken and unfaithful, we can draw near to him because his grace is bigger than our sin, okay? So that's one of the things we need to learn as disciples of Jesus. But then last night we're talking about being a disciple of Jesus also means just believing and recognizing that actually it really is finished and actually the blessing we want in our lives, Jesus Christ on the cross has already given you the thing you're looking for. So part of being a disciple of Jesus is actually learning to believe that and actually live in light of that so that we don't live this frantic life where we're kind of on this hamster wheel, right, of like work hard, work hard, perform, perform, like the whole rest of the world. We're actually not supposed to be exhausted like everyone else. The world can be exhausted. Christians are restful people. At least that's the goal, right? But also being a disciple of Jesus involves following Jesus on a very unique path in life, a very unique path in life. And to follow Jesus down this path actually looks totally opposite of the world because it's the opposite path the world is walking. And so I don't know, as you're kind of coming into this room, I don't know what like sin struggle you have that you're like, this is my main problem, but I wanna talk to you about what your real main problem is, okay? And it's your pride. So I don't wanna talk about this morning, pride. And so I remember growing up, my dad is a, Christian, he, he loves Jesus, he kind of shepherded our whole family with the gospel growing up, and I remember like in high school, my dad would sit me down regularly, probably like once a month, once every couple months, and he would sit me down and he would say, David, I love you, you know your mother and I love you, but there's something in your life I need to talk to you about, and it's your pride. And he would sit me down and he would say, David, you are a proud man. I see evidence of it in so many areas of your life. I see it in the way you hang out with your friends. I see it in the way you perform at school. I see it in the way you talk to us. You have a problem with pride. And I would look at my dad and I would just say, Dad, like, you have no idea what's going on in my life. Like, I may be a little bit proud, but like, you have no idea. Like, pride is like the least of my worries. Like, I'm like involved in all this vandalism you don't even know about. I'm addicted to pornography. Like, I have this whole secret life you have no idea about. And so you coming to me and saying like, pride is my problem, like, that's not helpful. That's not actually my biggest problem. But he would do this over and over again. He'd come to me and say, David, you have a problem with pride. It's going to destroy your life. It'll destroy your family someday. It'll destroy your friendships. It'll destroy your community. You have a problem with pride, and you deal with it. And every single time my dad would say this, I would say, I don't. Like, I don't have a problem with pride. Because I know proud people. I see proud people. I see them on the TV. 
And I'm like, that is pride. I'm not a proud person, though. And you come to me again and say, you have a problem with pride. I think that over my life as a follower of Jesus, I've come to the conclusion that of all the things that are broken in my life, pride is the number one thing that is broken in me. And Philippians 2 is, is written to a group of Christians who are trying to follow Jesus. And that's what he wants to talk to us about today. Okay, so I, I want to read this for us. This is Philippians 2, 1. You've probably read this before, or at least heard this chapter before. It really is kind of one of the most amazing <laughs> sections in the Bible. Um, and actually do this with me. Um, just stand up with me quick. I feel like there's some texts that are just weighty enough that like, we should stand for this. So, it's talking to this church, it says this, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy. So Paul's writing to the group of Christians, and he's saying, hey, I'm an apostle, like, I, I'm trying to write to you as like this Christian leader, this leader of Christ, and I'm trying to say, hey, if you, if there's any kind of Christian, Spirit of God, love of Jesus going on here, complete my joy by doing this thing, by being of the same mind, having the same love, and being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and has actually given him the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You guys can sit down. So, this passage in the Bible is talking about a way of life that Christians are supposed to have, and it's a way of life that matches up to the one we're following, Jesus Christ, right? So, I actually have five points. Don't worry, it won't take that long. They're short, okay? But a problem, a promise, a picture, a pattern, a person, okay? First thing you see in this text, a problem that we share. Look what he says. He says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by doing what? Being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition and conceit. Just read those words again. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Okay? So what is Paul talking about? He's saying, for this group of Christians, he's writing to in Philippi, Philippians 2, he's saying, I have this vision for you. I have this goal. I have this prayer for you. And it was actually that you would become this kind of group of Christians that have a kind of unity and a kind of love between them in such a way that it'd be unlike anything the world has ever experienced. That's what he's praying for. That's what he wants. And so he said that, he says the same mind, same love, being in full accord. And actually, like, the Greek word is here interesting because it's, like, it's hard to translate, but it literally just means, like, that you would have such a unity that it would be like you are sharing the same soul. 
You're like of one soul, like the deepest, most kind of unified place you could possibly be. And, you know, Jesus tells us this. He says that people are going to know you're a follower of him. You're going to know you're his disciple in the way that you love the people in this room. The way you love one another, your community, the love you have actually is going to say that's going to be one of the defining realities that tells the world whether you're a true follower of me or not or whether you're a real disciple or not is how you love your brothers or sisters in the faith. And, you know, Colin was talking about this Thursday night. He was saying we have this vision here. It's all kind of in the Twin Cities saying, like, there's 250,000 college students here. And our ambition, our prayer is that, like, 1% of them would be part of this room someday. 2,500, right? Way more people that are going to fit into this little gym, right? It's a massive ambition, and it's awesome. And it's like that is actually an awesome thing to pray for and get behind. The question is, how is that going to happen? Well, you're going to actually have to become a kind of community that all the other college students in the Twin Cities look at and go, I have never seen a group of people who love each other like you do. I've never seen that. I've never experienced anything like that. And it's true that you guys have fun together. You guys have great talent shows. Hilarious. I heard there was a baby Jesus. That's very cool. Um, like, we can have a kind of community that's actually really fun, and pe- we can pull people into and have a great time. And Salt Company is that. Like, you guys are awesome. Like, I've been hanging out with you a little bit this weekend, and I'm like, this is a super fun group of people. Paul's not just talking about a group of people that's fun. He's not just talking about a group of people that know how to party together. He's not just talking about a group of people that are, like, fairly authentic. He is talking about a profound unity that can only come in a group of people where pride has no place. And so if you want to actually reach the city of Minneapolis, that's going to be one of the primary ways you do it, is to actually destroy your pride. Because that will make this group of people compelling in a way no other group on planet Earth is. And he says this. So he says, okay, here's what I want you to do. Do nothing. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, consider others more significant than yourselves. Not think not just your own interest, but to the interests of others. Okay, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Okay, I think this is like in Parks and Rec, right? Ron Swanson goes into the diner and he's like, "Give me all your eggs and bacon," and he's like, "I think you misunderstood me. I didn't say a lot. I said all. Give me all of the eggs and all of the bacon." Right? This is what is probably going to happen as we read this. We're like, "Okay, do less things from selfish ambition. Do less things from ego." pride, conceit, try to limit that. Not what he says. He says, do nothing. Do not do a single thing in your life from a place of selfish ambition. If there's something you want because of selfish ambition, don't do that thing. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but instead, in humility, consider others more significant than yourself. This is a problem. (laughs) It's a problem for me. I know it's a problem for you. He's saying do nothing from selfish ambition and conceit. The problem is we do almost everything from selfish ambition and conceit. What Paul is putting his finger on is he's saying that if this group of Christians in Philippi, and also he's putting his finger on your heart and your community and saying, if this group of Christians in Minneapolis are going to be all that God intended you to be, then you actually have to become genuinely humble people. You actually must be more about your neighbor than about yourself. 
But the problem is that this is exactly what pride will not allow you to do. Pride won't allow you to do that because, you see, pride is competitive in nature. It's competitive in nature. It wants to compare you to others. It wants to dominate others. And what's interesting about pride is pride doesn't care what category it exists in, right? So you might be the kind of person that's like, well, hey, I used to kind of play that game on social media where I'd kind of post these pictures of myself and try to get as many likes, and I don't do that anymore. And instead, I just put my head down in school and try to work hard. Pride doesn't care if you change the category you measure yourself with as long as you're still measuring yourself against other people. And pride is so insidious. It will even let you slap religion on it, right? You can actually try to be the best Christian. You could try to be the most generous, the most kind, the most missional. That is actually a perfectly legitimate path forward for your pride to take as long as at the end of the day you're still thinking about yourself. Am I the most missional here? Am I the most on fire for Jesus? Do I know the Bible the best? And pride will even let you pursue humility and the service of others. Right? As long as at the end of the day, the thing you're thinking about is how humble you are. How you're not like those other people. And how much better you are than those people you criticize in your heart who don't treat people like you do. Paul wants unity and he wants this oneness of soul, like this profound unity in this group of Christians he's writing to. But because they are proud, they aren't like this. It isn't that their community is a train wreck, right? He actually, this is like a very different tone in Philippians than in James, right? James is like, you're fighting and quarreling and potentially murdering people, <laughs> right? It's like, it's like a really, like that's actually like a church that needs a lot of help. Philippi is actually probably a church that looks a lot like this group. Like it's fun, it's exciting. Most people feel really welcomed in and loved, but he's saying, no, I'm actually having, trying to compel you towards this deep, profound vision of a kind of unity and community that you don't even understand how good it is because few Christians have ever had the opportunity to actually become part of something like that because pride keeps them from it. He wants them to be united in mind and soul. But because each of them in their own way is actually in competition with everyone around them, they aren't unified. Because subtly and even secretly, each of them is really at war with everyone else. And it's, you know, it's easy to see selfish ambition and conceit in people around us, right? Like if you're like me, it's easy to see selfish ambition and conceit in people around us. Or when you might go to a party and you might be the person that gets frustrated, right? Where you're at the party and there's like this one person in the corner who's like self-aggrandizing and one-upping everyone's stories, right? And they're like the really loud, boisterous person that clearly is trying to get attention from people. We notice those people. But you know the people who are most frustrated, most frustrated and most appalled when they see pride and arrogance displayed in someone else, most often those people are people who are really proud themselves. Right? And the reason you're frustrated is because you see someone winning the game you're also playing. And you feel like they're cheating. Right? And you're like, I, no, no, I want the glory of this crowd. I just don't want to play that kind of game, but I still want the glory. But you know who isn't bothered by proud, obnoxious, self-aggrandizing people? You know who like barely notices them at all at the party? It's the humble person. They don't care, right? They aren't bothered by it because they aren't also trying to get the attention. That person is stealing. 
They aren't bothered about it because they're not also trying to get the power this person has amassed. They aren't trying to get the name that person is building for themselves. You see, we get mad at kind of this in-your-face display of pride and arrogance and social posturing only if you are actually in competition for the very same thing. And this is why God hates pride. Because the thing we're in competition for belongs to him. It's his glory. It's worship of him. And so what ends up happening in a group of Christians is there's some people who play this loud, boisterous game and some people who play this kind of in the quiet game, but it's still the same goal where we're all trying to figure out how do we get the glory that God owns and deserves, how do we get that for ourselves? It belongs to him and yet it's the thing that all of us are fighting over. But if your goal is to love and serve those around you, then what does it matter to you if someone is artificially making moves up the social hierarchy? What does it matter to you if someone's trying to gather fame and fortune and selfishly pursue their greatness if you don't care about these things? But the reality is we do. We do care about these things, right? We don't like being around proud, arrogant people because they're cheating the system. We don't like that everyone follows their Instagram because if we're really brutally honest and we kind of interrogate our souls, we actually wish they were following ours, right? We don't like it when everyone stops and listens to their story when they kind of one-upped our story because we really want the praise of those people. And the problem is you can't have a deep relationship with someone if you're in competition with them. You just can't. And you can't have a deep connection or unity with someone you are in competition with. But more than that, listen to me, more than that, you can't stare into the face of God if you are looking at yourself and the people around you. You can't. You can do one or the other, but you cannot do both at the same time. And that means that pride isn't like the small, inconsequential sin that marks part of our lives. Pride was actually in the heart of the devil when he fell from heaven. Pride was the very thing that the serpent tempted Adam and Eve when our parents kind of destroyed the world. Pride is now the sin that sits at the center of our heart. And it is actually the root cause of every single other sin and issue in your life. One theologian just says it like this. He says, pride is the gate and the birth and the curse of hell. Just all of it flows from pride. And pride doesn't care how it manifests itself in your life. Whether it's kind of this brash, outspoken desire for praise or glory, or whether it's like in insecurity and kind of, you know, self-loathing, or even if it's in like working really hard to convince yourself and people around you, you're humble. The only thing pride cares about, the only thing pride cares about is that you're thinking about yourself. When the Bible talks about humility, it doesn't actually talk about thinking less of yourself. Humility, as the Bible understands it, is actually just to think of yourself less. You're not thinking less of yourself, you're just thinking, you're not thinking about yourself as much, right? You're thinking of yourself less. And so I want you to see this, it's, that's the problem. But there's a promise, okay? And I want you to see this. Look at verse 5. So he says this, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So he's saying, have this mind, and it is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So first, I want you to see that Paul is commanding us to do something we can't do. Like he's speaking to a group of proud people, and he's saying, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. That should feel 
utterly impossible to you if you actually interrogate your heart and understand your actions. Do nothing. So he's commanding us to do something we can't do. But then he's saying, okay, have this mind of humility and oneness and self-sacrificial other-oriented love, and this should feel impossible to us. And for me, honestly, this feels really impossible because this feels like the mountain that I've been like trying to climb for a decade now. And I'm like, I want to be humble. I want to be like this. I don't want to think of myself. I don't want to care how you think of me on this stage. I don't want to think about how my prayers sound in Connection Group. I don't want to think about how much money I'm making or if I have the right clothes. I don't want to think about that stuff. But the problem is I do all the time. And honestly, pride and becoming a humble person feels like this massive mountain that I know I need to climb. But sometimes when I look at my life, it feels like I've never taken the very first step. And I still feel so proud. And so I need this promise, and maybe you do too. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Listen to me. If you're someone who struggles with pride, you need to understand humility is yours in Jesus Christ. It is yours. And, and it doesn't mean Jesus died to make you into a humble person. It doesn't mean, therefore, you better be humble. No, it means that actually Jesus, when he joins himself to you, despite your selfish ambition, despite your pride, despite your kind of like glory-stealing nature, he joins himself to you. And when he does that, he actually does it in such a way that he intends to make you a completely humble person. Not halfway, not sort of, not mostly. When Jesus chooses you and joins himself to you, he actually intends to make you absolutely perfect. Not an ounce of pride. Not even a tiny sliver. And listen, he will not stop until you're perfect. He will not stop until you're perfect. Until you can actually stand before the face of God in complete perfection and humility, Jesus will not be done with you. And I need this because I see my pride and I need to know that Jesus will finish the work he started. And so he starts off right now. He's going to talk about this path we're going to walk, but he starts with the promise of saying, if you know Jesus Christ, you put your faith in him, you actually can become this person. Jesus died to make you this kind of person. He won this for you. But now he's going to give us a picture, okay? That's the promise. He's going to give us a picture. And the picture is of the man of humility, the man on the cross, Jesus. So look what he says, have this mind amongst yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, so like he is God, he's in the form of God. Though that's true, he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he, he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And it says that being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, but not just death, even death on a cross. The picture that Paul gives us is a picture of Jesus, but specifically it is a picture of what Jesus did for you. It's not just who he is, but it's how he redeemed you, the way he redeemed you. And Paul is saying, hey, you in the room, do you want to be humble? I just want you to do this. Literally raise your hand. If you want to be humble, raise your hand. I want to be humble. Here's what he says to you. 
then fix your eyes on this picture. Jesus on the cross for you. And he isn't just saying, think about that once. He's saying, no, actually, get that into your head. Memorize this verse. Sit and stare at it. And don't just stare at it at a retreat, but actually spend the entire rest of your life staring at this man on the cross, paying the cost of your redemption. That though he was in the form of God, he didn't count that as something to be grasped, but he actually emptied himself and he became like you. But not just like you, he became your servant. He was born in the likeness of men. Do you understand how crazy that is? That God actually became a human being? Like that's the first thing it's talking about. Like that's like the very first part of humility of God is just saying, hey, he was born in the likeness of men, right? He was fully and completely God. At the same time, Jesus Christ was fully and completely human, meaning with all of our frailty and weakness and physicality. This is one of the most insane truths in the entire Bible, right? Like we don't get it. Like literally last night as you're like, there's this quite larger than a baby person walking up here is baby Jesus, right? But like that's this crazy thing. But like that happened, not that guy, but there was actually a human being who was God, who was literally born into a tiny manger. Like that is stunning, absolutely stunning. He didn't count equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself He became like us. How unfathomable is that? Like, have you ever just stopped to consider that? That the God who literally created the universe and literally holds the cosmos in the palm of his hand, he became small enough to fit in the palm of your hand. And the God who spoke the stars into existence and has named all of them. The God who spoke time and light into existence. That God became so small and so fundamental that he had to learn how to speak. That should stun us. That is unbelievable humility. The condescension that God had to go through, not even to the cross, just to become like us is staggering. He didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but instead he so humbled himself He so condescended himself that he might become small enough so that we could actually grasp him. And in grasping him, what we would do is we would lash him and we would tie ropes around him and we would take nine inch long spikes and we would drive them through his wrists and through his ankles and we would nail him to a cross. He became small enough and physical enough so that that could happen. That's the reason he became a human being. It was because you can't kill a disembodied God. But if God humbles himself so profoundly to become like us that we would be able to actually kill him. And so God humbles himself to the point where we literally jam wrists into his legs and into his hands and we hoist his bruised, bleeding body high into the air. The goal of crucifixion is not to kill someone. That is, it's a horribly inefficient way of doing that. Like if you want to kill someone, it's about the worst way you could kill someone. No, the goal of crucifixion was to strip the person of everything. 
That's the goal of crucifixion. It was to bring a complete and brutal humiliation on the person. The one being crucified would have everything taken from them, but actually in the end they would even have their clothes stripped away from them and they would be hung up on the cross for the birds and the animals and the mockery of everyone to just scorn and shame. Like when we depict Jesus on the cross, we cover his naked body because it's actually too shameful for us to even picture it as it happened. Horrible, unbelievable humiliation. And people would come and they would watch them writhe in pain as they slowly drown in their own blood over days. That's what crucifixion was. And Paul is saying, you want to be humble? You want to lose the pride that sits in your heart? Then look at that. And actually spend the rest of your life looking at that. And I want you to just do that right now. Like literally just put yourself right there at the base of the cross. And I want you to look up at your crucified Savior who is dying on your behalf. And I want you to see him there. Like that picture that he is painting. This man who so humbled himself not just to become obedient to the point of death. But even death on a cross. And I want you to see your Savior there on the cross bleeding for you. And like you look down at the base of the cross. And you see this like muddled dirt that's stained crimson by the blood. That's like slowly draining down the base of the cross. He was nailed to a cross by soldiers he created. He's nailed to a tree that he made. And he's struggling for breath as he is looking into the eyes of those who are killing him and he knows their names he knows their stories he knows their destinies because he is their creator and he is their God and I want you to just look at that scene this tortured humiliated man is paying the cost of your redemption and I want you to hear what his voice sounds like as he is using his very last breaths that are probably like starting to gurgle because of the blood that is filling up his lungs as he's crying out my God my God why have you forsaken me and what Paul is saying is when you stand at the base of the cross and you look up at your savior there is no place for pride here Pride cannot exist in a place as desolate and horrific as the base of the cross. And Christian, you are meant to live your life there. That is meant to be the place and the posture that you actually live the entire rest of your life. Is at the base of the cross. That's why you take communion. It's like you do that regularly, right? Because you're like remembering like this is the cost of my redemption. It wasn't with something as like invaluable as blood or silver that God purchased you, but actually it was with the precious blood of the firstborn loved son of God. And when you come face to face with Jesus and his cross, there's only two options. One, you can fall to the ground in humility and sorrow. Or you can look away. But you can't look at Jesus and you cannot come face to face with your savior and remain proud. It's impossible. And Paul is saying when you understand this and when you see it and when you experience it, it will start to change you. 
And so if you are someone who is proud, he is saying, think about this. Spend time meditating on it. Live your life seated at the base of the cross. And over time, this man of the cross, his humility will begin to change you into a humble person. So that's the picture. He wants to give us a pattern, okay? Because what, you, what happens next, honestly, is incredible. Okay, he's not just giving you a picture of saying, look at Jesus on the cross. He's saying, I'm going to give you a pattern that I want you to like, this to drive deep into your soul. So that as you walk out in the world and you're saying, what kind of life do I live? What path do I take? You need this pattern. You need to believe this pattern. You need to put your faith and trust in this pattern because this is going to be, this is going to determine whether you follow the path of God or the path of the world. Okay, look at this pattern. Verse nine, Jesus on the cross humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Look what it says next. Therefore, okay, it gets really dark. And then he says, therefore, because of what Jesus has done, because he walked this path of humility and death, therefore God has highly exalted him. And he's actually bestowed on him this crucified man who goes to the bottom of the world, God the Father has bestowed on him the name that is above every single other name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow in heaven and on earth or under the earth and every single tongue would confess Jesus Christ is Lord and all of that would happen for the glory of God the Father. This is pattern he's talking about, and we should marvel at this. We should stand in awe of what Paul is saying, because he's saying that the crucified one, the one who goes all the way to the very bottom of humanity to be the servant of all, he's saying when this world flips over and the kingdom of God comes in power, the one who went to the very bottom of this world ends up being at the very top of the kingdom of heaven. He went to the very bottom of this world. Like the very bottom. Like there's no one who lived a more humiliating life than Jesus. You might look at your life and you may say, I've got some shame and like my life's not going that well. I promise you, Jesus is below you on the social hierarchy of this place. He's below everyone. He was crucified. And he's saying, understand that it's because of that that he now has the name that is above every name. I want you to read kind of the end of the story with me, Revelation 5, okay? Because you have to see this. It's stunning. Revelation 5 is this vision John has of kind of the new heavens and new earth that are coming to pass. It's a kind of prophetic vision of what is the end of the story going to be like? So it says this, Revelation 5, 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who is seated on the throne... A scroll, and, and it was written within and on the back, and it was sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty, a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. This is a picture of a vision of every single human being who has ever lived in the history of the world, heaven, earth, under the earth, every single one, and it's saying that there is not a single one of us that is worthy to open the scroll or even look in it. And so what happens is John 
It says, verse 4, I began to weep loudly because no one is able to open this scroll. And this scroll holds like the full will of God for people and redemption and eternity. Like this scroll is salvation. This scroll is like unfolding the purposes and promises of God. And there's not a single human being worthy to take it from God's hand and open it and unfold it. And he starts to weep loudly because of that. That there's not a single humble person that's ever existed. And John is undone because no one's found worthy. And then one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. And this lamb, he went and he takes a scroll from the right hand of him who's seated on the throne. And when he'd taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the four elders, they fell down before the lamb. And they're each holding a harp and bowls of incense and their prayers of the saints. And they begin to sing this new song in heaven because all of a sudden this lamb who was slain takes the scroll from the one seated on the throne and they begin to sing this new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you've made them a kingdom of priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. And it continues. And then I looked, and I heard around the throne, and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbered myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And then I heard every single creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And that might be my 1002 alarm. I don't know, but it might be mine in my coat back there. And at the very end, it just says, and the four living creatures said amen. And the elders, they fell down and they worshiped. Is this not what Jesus means when he tells you, disciple, follower of Jesus, to pick up your cross and follow him? He is not asking you to add anything to his sacrifice. It is finished. What he is doing is he is inviting us down to the bottom of the world where he is. He's inviting you to give up your relentless pursuit of selfish ambition and self-building project and instead to pursue humility And to actually intentionally and with conviction push others and put others ahead of you. To consider others as more significant than yourself. To actually love others at the very intentional cost of yourself. He's inviting you. Listen, don't misunderstand this. He is inviting you to the bottom of this world. He is. You follow a crucified Jesus. He's not inviting you to a health, wealth, and prosperity. He's inviting you to die with him. 
He's inviting you to go to the very bottom of this world. But the reason he's doing that is because the bottom of this world, the one who goes there, is at the very top of the kingdom of heaven. C.S. Lewis says it like this. He says this principle, it actually runs through life from the top to the bottom. Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and your favorite wishes every day, and actually even the death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being, and you will find eternal life. Keep nothing back, because nothing you've ever given away will really be yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself. And in the long run, you will find only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ, and you will find him, and with him, everything else thrown in. I think that one of the great tragedies of the world, and one of the great tragedies of the church, is how many people who identify as Christians still spend their whole life trying to get to the top of this world only at the end of their story to find themselves at the very bottom of the kingdom of heaven. You are living in the prologue of the story. This is not even the first chapter. And that story will go on forever and ever and ever and ever. You do not want to be first here. You want to be last here because Jesus was last here and he is first in the story that actually matters. We're told at the end of the story, the person who was last ends up first. We are told that the entire new heavens and new earth, all of it orients around one who looks like a lamb who was slain. And yet most of our lives and our thoughts, we're trying to go in the opposite direction. Right? And this is so hard for us. It's hard for me because we don't want to be humiliated. We want respect. We don't want to be last. We want to be first. We don't want to be looked down on. We'd rather be in a position where we could look down on others. And what's true of me and probably true of you is we are actually terrified of being pushed further down the ladder. We're terrified of that. We're terrified of ending up at the bottom of the heap in this world or in your classes or even in Salt Company or in your connection group. We're terrified of being at the bottom of the heap. But that's where Jesus is. It's where he is. And no matter how much you serve and no matter how much you empty yourself, no matter how much you serve others at cost to yourself, you will always have someone else further below you lifting you up with his life, Jesus Christ. And that's the last thing I want to talk about. It's not just a pattern, but it's a person. A person to follow. When God looks at people he loves, he doesn't just say, hey, this is the path to life. He doesn't just give us a blueprint for greatness. He gives us his son. And as you are living your life as a Christian, you're going to be on this ladder. Like this picture is like a ladder, right? And what's true is because you have, you, I mean, you have so many different things in your life and in your world, and you have people, and you have kind of proclamations over you that are telling you the way that you find value and success is to continue to climb higher and higher on that ladder. But there is going to be a moment in your life, and it's probably already happened, where on your journey in this life, and you're trying to climb higher and higher, you meet Jesus. Like you meet him. And you see him, and he changes your life. 
And you fall in love with him. And you're like, I cannot believe you would do this for me. I can't believe you died on a cross for me. Your grace has changed me. You've given me this blessing I didn't deserve. Jesus changes your life. And you go, I want to follow you. And he goes, okay. And he starts climbing down the ladder. And you have this choice because you want to follow Jesus. You love him. He's changed your life. You want to be with him. But he's going down, not up. There are a lot of people who meet Jesus. And there are a lot of people who really are saved. They have faith in Jesus. And that faith saves them. But they live a life very far from his presence. And they don't experience the kind of intimacy Jesus has for them because they refuse to follow Jesus where he's going. And they refuse to be humiliated like their savior. And even though they want his salvation, they don't want to be crucified with him. What I want to do is invite you to actually not just receive salvation from this crucified savior, I want you to believe in your heart that actually the best possible way you could spend your life is living like him. Going and doing the kinds of things he does. Not because you think it's going to earn you anything, but just because that's where Jesus is. That's the kind of stuff he does. And if he's changed your life, be with him. Like Hebrews talks about this. It says, if Jesus suffered for us outside the gate, right, in this place of humiliation and ostracization, right, like not a place of privilege where the world goes, good for you, you're part of us. No, if Jesus suffered for you outside the gate, then let's go to him and let's be with him. Why? Because we love him. And more than anything in the world, we want to be with him. The goal of the end of the story is that we would be on our knees before this king. And actually the goal of your life, what Jesus intends to do in you, is actually to do something in you to humble you so that you would no longer look at yourself or the people around you, but you would actually just be so captivated by this man on the cross in your place that you would stop thinking about yourself because you are so consumed by him. And you are so in love with him so that even if he says, hey, I'm going to go here and it's going to cost you everything, you go, I don't care about anything else. Take the world, give me Jesus. The goal of this passage isn't to get you to think less of yourself. It's actually to get to think of yourself less because you're amazed at Jesus. And we pick up our cross and we follow him, not out of duty or compulsion, but we follow Jesus because we want to be with him. We serve those around because we want to do it with him, and that's the kind of life he's living. We are given a pattern to true greatness, and it really is. It's a pattern. You want to you be truly great? The Bible just says, this is what you do. Go down the ladder, not up. Gives you a pattern, but more than that, it gives you a person to follow. And following this person will make you truly great because he is truly great. And when we follow Jesus to the bottom of the world, we will find that we have actually arrived side by side with him at the top of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is not asking you to pick up your cross and die so that you can have a lesser existence. He is inviting you to be next to him at the top of his kingdom. 
but there's actually a pathway you have to walk. You have to follow him. You have to die to yourself. But in the end, that will not cost you anything. It will actually gain for you something of inestimable value. Let's pray to Jesus that he would actually do that in us. Father God, when we meet you in our lives, God, so many of us in this room, we've already decided to follow you. We've, we've kind of put our flag in the ground. We've said, yes, we want to follow Jesus. But then when we read your word and when we start to watch you <laughs> go to really hard, humiliating places and when we see you climbing down the ladder, God, we stop. And it's like we call out to you and we say, Jesus, what are you doing? Why are you going down there? I can't follow you there. And Jesus, I just feel you calling back to me and saying, trust me. Walk with me. Be with me. I promise this is the way to life, even though it feels like the way to death. Jesus, would you give us the kind of heart of faith that believes that? And God, would you give us the kind of heart of love that says, I don't even care if this is the path to life, but it's the path Jesus is on, and I just must be with him because he is the only thing I care about in this world. Give us that kind of heart. Help us worship you this morning in your name.